Before we start into part two of Sort Your Brain Out with Jack Lewis, I want to thank our sponsor, Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and transfer funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. I also want to ask anybody who's watching the show on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel, wherever that button is, subscribe. Uh, like the page as well, like the video, leave comments, I'll answer back your comments wherever I can. And if you're listening to the show across the various different platforms, please subscribe as well helps us get into that damn algorithm and start boosting the show and getting it to more and more people. Let's get into part two of sort your brain out with Jack Lewis. Welcome back to part two of sort your brain out with Dr. Jack Lewis. Jack, welcome back. Thanks very much. Looking forward to round two. Let's start round two with some of the bops. I thought probably what we've just done, a couple of us, uh, just during during the time that we had as a break. The first thing I, I thought we'd share would be water, then exercise, then stress, then get out into nature, and then the caffeine bop as well. Brain optimization principles are my favorite. Uh, I always top and tail my talks with them because it's like, you know, the brain... It's quite simple to run if you know the basics, uh, but there's so much well-intentioned advice on what we should do. It's hard to keep track of it. So, uh, yeah, the bops are the stuff which I think from the scientific literature, they're the most important things. And there's just a handful of them, which makes it much easier to actually put it into practice every day. Number one is water. And we, we were laughing because uh, I, as I swig from a, a bottle here, <laughs> and you were saying you do the same when you're doing your talks as well. And at, at first people... People are kind of looking at you, kind of going, is that, I don't know what to make of that. Is it rude or not? And I'm like, oh, well, I just consume so damn much of it. Like, I'm not going to put it in the in the glass here the whole time. But it's so, so important for the brain. Yeah, water is, is vitally important. Like, we don't realize that every single morning we wake up dehydrated. And the reason that that is always the case is if, well, that's if we've slept through for, let's say, seven or eight hours without waking up and, and taking water on board through the night. Because, um we're constantly losing uh, H2O, water, every time we exhale. And the reason is the only way we can get oxygen into our bloodstream uh, in order that our body and brain can use it for metabolism to release more energy from, from the glucose that we have knocking around our body. Uh, and, then, and then we have to breathe away the carbon dioxide, which um, is, is, is a waste material of that carbon, of, of that uh, metabolism. And so in order to get this gas exchange happening across the inner surface of our lungs, it has to be moist. But then on every exhalation, we blow away this water vapor. We, we're always losing water vapor. We're blowing it away, blowing it away, blowing it away. And it's only, you know, obviously in the daytime, we could take a sip of water. We can take water on board through the food that we eat. There are various different ways we can top up our water levels during the day. Um, and so the one thing that I always tell people to remember is that the older you get, the more blunt your thirst becomes. What do I mean by that? So young people, as soon as they're slightly dehydrated, they'll feel uh, thirsty and they'll they'll do so, that will remind them to do something about it and take on board some water. But then during uh, you know midlife, uh, your thirst is a bit delayed. The thirst kicks in a little bit after you've become dehydrated. Um, and, and, and indeed, you have to be slightly more proactive. If, you, if you're waiting until you're thirsty uh, before you drink water, then, then you've left it a little bit late. But it, in the sort of retirement years, it's particularly acute. People 
can get really dehydrated and not feel thirsty. So you have to remember to take on board water on a regular basis. Now, why? So the reason it's so important is that um, biologically, all sorts of different systems are compromised if there's not enough water in our body and brain, right? Also, it can affect digestion. It can affect various functions of, of the bodily organs. But because I'm obsessed by the brain, I focus on that bit. And <clears throat> the electrical messages that are sent from one end to the other of those 86 billion neurons um, operate at 250 miles per hour in, in a well-hydrated brain. Uh, but it actually slows down the speed at which messages go from one end to the other of these neurons. And if you think about all of our cognitive powers, all of our sensory abilities are driven by these neurons sharing information with each other really, really rapidly. Um, and so it's not that the message doesn't get there at all. It's just if the message is only traveling down these myelinated uh, neurons at 150 or 200 miles per hour compared to the 250 that is usual, it means that some of those messages are arriving a little bit late a little bit late so that, so that everything's slowed down somewhat. So in the morning, because we, 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 we've we slept through the night, we've been blowing away all this water, uh, we're a little bit dehydrated, almost by definition, if, we, if we've slept through without waking up to drink water in the night. The reason we feel foggy-headed in the morning and we're sort of a bit mal-coordinated, dropping things, like rushing to get out of the house. We don't know where we put things. You know, wh wh where are my keys? Where's my wallet? Where's my lunch? You know, we can be a bit discombobulated if, we, if we're trying to get going early in the morning. It's basically because we're dehydrated. And we'll, we'll, of course, take some kind of water on board at some point in the morning uh, because you, you'll get around to it eventually. But what I advise people to do, bop number one, you start each day completely dehydrated. Get a glass of water ready next to your bed. And then the first thing you do after you open your eyes is, is down it. You know, like, I mean, I, I'm quite you know, 90 kilos, six foot tall. I, I, I tend to do a pint. Uh, other people that drinking that much water in the morning would make them feel sick. But the point is, rather than waiting until further down the line when you happen to have taken on board fluids, just get it done straight away. Um, and, and you can regain, let's say, 15 minutes where you would otherwise feel foggy headed each day just because you're dehydrated and your brain isn't firing on all cylinders. If you regain 15 minutes, um, let's say half an hour of, of clear mindedness in the morning uh, each day, then that's three and a half hours each week. That's uh, seven hours each fortnight. That's 14 hours of, of extra clear thinking per month. If you add it up over the course of a year or a lifetime, like, you know, such a simple fix. It's one of the reasons I was so keen to get you on is the firstly, the the way you speak in such common language. So we understand that you're not trying to show intelligence through this book, you're trying to have an impact. I absolutely love that. And then it's one of the goals of this show is to help people with information in a simple way that they can actually make better decisions in life and thus lead better lives and be happier in life because it's hard enough without knowing this stuff, you know, and I was I was thinking about one thing that I'm going to jump around the box a little bit because you mentioned later on about how you basically intermittent fast and I do as well I do intermittent fasting today for example I'm on a, an OMAD so a one meal a day day where most days I just did the two meals a day but it, this is quite important because of the energy fight for digestion of the food versus thinking is one thing but also the other thing that I've learned is with the water 
in the morning a little bit of salt in it because there's an electrical pulse helps the electricity helps the electrolytes actually move the electrolytes helps the message move a little bit faster and i thought you might want to add that because you're also an intermittent faster yeah yeah and also with regard to taking salt when it's hot like you know we're recording this in a in a very hot period of the year it's sweaty it's sweltering you know we we're, we're sweating a lot in our sleep um and people like culturally in in countries say or, or you know in the tropics or on the equator people have very very strongly sweetened drinks or very very salty foods are just a part of 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 the, of the cultural fix to this problem that if we've sweated away our salts then our kidneys are unable to reabsorb the water that gets squeezed out every moment of every day which means we can drink as much water as we want our kidneys are just going to make us piss it away and so this is why a little bit of salt in 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 water you know there's nothing in salt that your body can digest so therefore you're not breaking your fast if you put sugar in then it is because that you know sugar sucrose can be broken down into glucose glucose can be used to metabolize and that means you're shifting your metabolism away from uh, ketosis where you would metabolize fats uh, and you only metabolize fats in the absence of sugar or, or, or glycogen stores so once you're completely depleted there's no glycogen stores left there's no sugar from your last sugary drink um that forces your body to to actually start devouring the fats that are stored away in your body and as soon as it has any kind of sugar available uh, it, it'll switch over to processing glucose um, but salt is not glucose so topping up uh, a little bit of salt in your water does make sense particularly in the hot months so I've kind of conflated two parts of the story there but the intermittent <laughs> fasting thing it's just so important we are we are we are conditioned you know the environment that we grow up in we are conditioned to think it's normal to eat from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep and that is bullshit our ancestors never did that you know you you, you might have some food stores but in the absence of preserved foods and uh, refrigerators and all that kind of stuff we had to go out and hunt and gather a lot of the food that we get in a day which means which means expending energy to get hold of your breakfast in the first place so i used to think that i, I was so reliant on my my sugary cereal in the morning my my marmalade smothered toast uh my full english breakfast whatever i was such a i have to have breakfast before i can function at all i never dreamt i'd be able to do this and it was visiting a friend of mine who lives out in the northern uh mountains of the northern thai highlands and he was like no no no, no. you got it all wrong you got it all wrong just come around to you know i was living in a hut on his land he was like come to the main house and don't you can have black coffee you can't have anything else and so i lived this life for a month and i i was sure that i wouldn't be able to do it and we drink black coffee and then we do like a pretty intensive workout and then half an hour later i'd go for a run and then half an hour later i'd come back again and then i was allowed to eat and sometimes this whole thing it would it would be more than an hour of exercise before I ate. And if you told me I would do any time in my teens, twenties, thirties, even, you know, if you told me I'd be doing this, I'd be like, no way. That's just not what it's not what my metabolism's like. I really need food in the morning. And since he proved me wrong, I've been continuing uh, this, and I, I routinely don't get around to eating breakfast. So I still get, you know, you have to have breakfast. Of course you do. You have to break your fast. 
fasting is not eating. We all break our fast eventually. <laughs> um, but I tend to eat my breakfast cereal, my uh, my, my oats and with a piece of guest fruit in it and some honey and some cinnamon. I tend to eat that at like 11 or 11.30, sometimes even 12. And so that means that my, my gut has had at least 12 hours to just re relax, re rest, recuperate, not do anything. When your stomach gurgles, um, that's actually your small intestine jet washing itself. You know, so gurgling stomach, it's not like, oh, no, emergency, I'm hungry, terrible. It's like, no, it's fine. It's good. It means that your gut is doing some repair and maintenance work that it wouldn't have a chance to do if it had been processing the last few snacks you had at, say, 10, 11 o'clock at night whilst you're watching your favorite Netflix show or whatever. So some people need their breakfast fixed and then they can stop eating. If you have your breakfast at 6 a.m., they'll stop eating at 6 p.m. I can't do that. I'm, I'm, and a lot of people, their decision making becomes much more immediate gratification, much less long term uh, benefits later and later in the day. But for those who are bad at eating in a disciplined way later in the day, you can just delay your breakfast uh, until such a time. But like I think an, an optimal state, some people really stretch it out. I've got a mate who does 16 hours of not eating a day and he gets all his eating into an eight hour period. And he he's He's in full Adonis mode. He's an actor. It, it makes sense for him professionally. Uh, but I, I, that's too much for me. Anyone can make it to 12 hours, somehow reorganizing uh, their life so that they only drink water, coffee, herbal teas, no milk, no sugar, no anything like that. And like our bodies are so much better off for it. And don't just take it from me. One of my neighbors is a, an A&E consultant in a, in a London hospital, and he says that's one of his major problems throughout his medical career, convincing people that you don't have to constantly be shoving food in our mouth. This is to the betterment of multinational companies who profit from making us overconsume food. Uh, read a book called, what is it called? Sugar, salt, and fat, sugar, salt, or salt, sugar, fat, or whatever. It, it, it goes through the huge conspiracy where these companies know that they're making us fat and unhealthy and they don't care because it profits them. Um, we need to take matters into our own hands and eat different foods from the ones they're making convenient for us um, to eat with a lesser frequency. Love it, man. And for those people interested in that, we have Robert Lustig coming on the show in the new year, along with Gary Tobes, the guys that really focused on what Jack's talking about here. Jack, there's loads of ways I could have gone. Exercise, I know, is a, is a bop. Uh, but I thought I'd jump ahead in the book for those people interested because we're talking about liquids here. And you were talking about how the importance of, you know, or, or the reabsorption of liquids. And actually, I thought, well, this would be an interesting thing for those people who were recording on a Friday here. Friday is a drink day for a lot of people. And so is Saturday, so is Sunday in some cases. But it's the effect on the brain that I really wanted to focus on of alcohol that's so important. Alcohol is very, very relevant to the dehydration story because the, the reason you wake up feeling awful the next day is because alcohol paralyzes the mechanism that enables you to reabsorb water. So the ki kidney function kind of baffles people. It's a long time since we were in biology lessons. Fair enough. The kidney's job is to take the blood coming through it. All of our blood is filtered through the kidneys. And it squeezes out everything into the kidney, all of it, everything squeezed out, apart, apart from like red blood cells and, and, and th big things, teeny tiny things, liquid things, they're squeezed out into the kidney. And then anything that's not reabsorbed is passed on to the bladder 
and you urinate it away. You get you get rid of it from the body. But water is reabsorbed across these special channels. And if the kidney isn't salty and sugary enough, then there's no osmotic pressure to force that, that water back across into the bloodstream. But the other thing that can happen is if the channels that it that it that it passes through to get from the kidney fluid back into the bloodstream, if those are blocked, then it, it's got no way of getting back in. And alcohol blocks those. It shuts off those things. So we've all noticed that, you know, once you break the seal, have a couple of drinks, break the seal, and you, you urinate a lot. That's why. It's because your kidney is incapable, whilst there's lots of alcohol in your bloodstream, of reabsorbing the water. And so you you, you piss it all away. So the vast majority of the hangover is um, is being dehydrated. So that's why we naturally have an instinct to get down to the kebab shop, you know, before we go to bed, because we sort of instinctively have a sense that we've lost a lot of alcohol. Uh, sorry, we've lost a lot of uh, water. We need to eat something uh, salty to give our uh, kidneys a fighting chance of, of, of being able to reabsorb that water. So that's one thing. But that's not the only thing about alcohol. Uh, alcohol really fundamentally impacts on some of the things that our brain does overnight. Whilst you're asleep for eight hours, it's when your brain does its uh, repair and maintenance work. It's when you do your memory consolidation and it's where you do your toxin removal. The brain cells literally shrink down all of the toxins that build up from metabolism over the course of the day. They leach out into the surrounding fluid. And then in the morning, your brain swells back up to its normal size. And through pneumatic pressure, through actual the force of like inflating back up it squeezes away that dirty water but the alcohol bit is relevant to memory consolidation right so we have experiences in the day not all of them are worth recalling you know some of it's just not important enough to log in your long-term memory banks so it's overnight that our brain does various things with our memories sorts through the memories of the day and picks out the things that are potentially of, of use are going to be important in the future and then that has to be incorporated with your existing body of memories. Alcohol greatly interferes with that process. The other thing it does is uh, it, it, it meet, alcohol tends to, you, you fall off dead asleep and then you go through, a, you know, sleep cycles take about 90 minutes or so on average. And you go into deep sleep and then you come up into dream sleep. And you go into deep sleep and you come up into dream sleep. And then halfway through the night, you start sleeping badly. You know, you, you, you slip fitfully. You, you wake up, you go back to sleep, you wake up, you go back to sleep. You don't go through these cycles like you normally should do. So, so the deep sleep does one aspect of the memory consolidation, helping those temporary memories become permanent memories. But then the REM sleep, the dream sleep, REM being rapid eye movement, which is what you tend to do whilst you're dreaming, that does a different job to the memory. And this bit is so important for anyone who feels anxious and you're wondering why, oh, but alcohol, it makes you feel so relaxed after a stressful day. But, but th this horrible, vicious cycle uh, happens whereby the alcohol, sure, in the short term, it makes you feel more relaxed and you can get things off your chest with your friends and colleagues and just feel better about yourself. But because of the impact on REM sleep in the latter half of the night, so our, our passages of REM sleep, dream sleep, last longer in the second half of the night. And it's the REM sleep that defangs emotionally negative memories. So say you had an altercation with, with a family member or a friend or some stranger in the street. And, and when you when it keeps repeating on you, and you're like, I can't believe they said, I can't believe I said that to them. And how dare they do, you know, all that kind of stuff that we can torture ourselves with that really gets our heckles up, that really gets our stress levels going. By revisiting that memory, we can only learn from our experiences if we can recall them.
right? If we do something stupid and then forget it, we're never going to learn from it. We're never going to change our future behaviors. But specifically with regard to defanging these memories, it takes away the negative emotion associated with these memories that would stress us out when we recalled it in the future, but without actually eliminating the memory. So that's why I call it defanging of negative social emotions. We, we need to defang. Like, we, we'll, upsetting things happen week in, week out. You know, like no one said that human life would be perpetually happy. You know, suffering is an inevitable part of the human state. Buddha said it first. I'm not, you know, this, this information has been around for two and a half millennia. Uh, I'm not the first to say it, but we forget it in modern world. We feel like we should be happy all the time. It's stupid. We shouldn't. Happiness is a, is a fleeting reward we get for, for having achieved something good, you know, ideally. Um, but man, when we drink because we're feeling stressed and then that very alcohol gets in the way of our brain's natural nighttime process of helping us to suffer less from our own emotional memories. It's awful. If you don't drink, then just sleeping well for eight hours will help you feel less stressed come morning. If only you can be patient enough to wait till morning, if only you can be bothered to set up your bedroom so that there's no light coming in to wake you up prematurely, there's no sounds happening in the night that wake you up, there's no scratchy bedclothes that wake you up, there's no lumpy pillow that gives you a crick in the neck that wakes you up, there's no massive amount of bowl of cereal that you had moments before you went to sleep which halfway through the night has got into your small intention creates a bulge in your in your viscera which wakes you up there's so many things we need to do detective work we need to make sure that our sleep hygiene is good and not bad and when our sleeping environment is optimal we need to go you know challenge ourselves to increase the amount of sleep we get by 15 minutes a month until we're in that seven to eight hour zone so it doesn't matter if you're sleeping for four or five hours a night and you have done for years and years. Increase your sleep opportunity by 15 minutes every single month. And if you think about it, that's an hour every four months. That's two hours every eight months. That's three. You can go from five to eight hours in one year, just small bite-sized chunks. And don't let alcohol interfere with that eight hours because it does so many important things for your brain. The other effect of that, and you mentioned about the bowl of cereal, the snacking before bedtime, one of the things I discovered was actually your stomach doesn't really go to sleep then. You don't give it the rest and digest period because you're just constant. And then you get up again and breakfast is break fast. So you break the fast again, often with sugar as well. And it's hidden in so many foods. But one of the things I discovered about the alcohol is it turns to sugar during the night. And that's why it wakes you up then constantly. So you never get into that deep that deep sleep, that cleansing sleep as well. And I say all that to say about sugar, because while this isn't in the bop section of the book, the five bops at the very start, sugar, I loved your meringue metaphor. Because when in the work that we do, running workshops or giving keynotes, etc. I was always annoyed by and, and I sometimes get criticized for this. So when I work run the workshop, I try to bring in healthier foods instead of you know sometimes there's like a big bowl of sweets and there's all chocolate and muffins Biscuits, and yeah and i'm kind of going well this this work is actually really happy especially if you're working with an executive team on the future of the organization making decisions and then you're just clouding literally as you'll tell us about in a second their decision making by actually clouding up their brain how are they going to make good decisions? And then on top of that, they have the stomach fighting with the brain kind of going, you know, I need this energy. No, I need the energy to digest all that pasta and sandwiches that you just gave me. 
I mean, so I, I call it the sugar roller coaster, right? So it's it's about there, there is a place if you're if if you're going into a performance. So so this is the difference between daily habits um, and being in performance mode, right? So if if I'm giving a talk, all the normal rules that keep me healthy on a daily basis go go out of the window because it's about making sure that I have all of the sugar available for my brain because I know when I'm standing up and walking around on stage and thinking on my feet and talking nonstop for an hour and, and keeping people engaged and reading the room. And it's just such a huge, huge um, job for my brain to do. I'm going to be ripping through that sugar. So whereas I wouldn't normally eat a load of like brownies and biscuits and all that kind of stuff in that environment, I actually do. And and I, I often like, if I have to stay the night before a talk, I'm like, Oh God, I've sneak around. Like, like I, I'm going to have, full English I'm gonna have a bowl of cereal at whatever time in the morning I get to eat before I go because I'm gonna churn through that but it's different if you're going into a normal day of work if you're doing all that stuff in normal day of work and you're just routinely over consuming that's when it's bad because anything you eat it doesn't matter whether it's fat or sugar gets turned into fatty deposits under your skin right that's what keeps us alive our ancestors alive through periods of food scarcity we cannibalize any fatty deposits in our belly, in our bum, in our thighs, in whatever, like it kept our ancestors alive, right? So, so the, there is a place for eating sugar if you're performing, but on a, on a, on a, on a sort of day to day basis, normal everyday life, it's about avoiding that, that stuff that causes your blood sugar level to spike immediately available sugary things. Um, because you then release an absolute shit ton of insulin, and then an hour later you've plum you, you plummeted to rock bottom. All that all that sugar's been hoovered out of your body, and then and then you're, you're feeling lethargic or you're feeling irritable. And then what do you do? You scratch around. You're like, oh, I'm going to go to go find some food. You go to the cafe. What do you find? Muffins, incredibly sugary cake stuff. That's what you want to eat. You go up again, and then your body goes, oh wait, you know that's going to absolutely make meringue out of my brain wires. It's the the myelin sheath which enables those uh, neurons to send messages at 250 miles per hour rather than the piffling 50 to 100 miles per hour if it didn't have the myelin sheath. That myelin sheath is, 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 is fatty. And if you add sugar to fat, you make meringue, right? So that's what happens in the brains of, uh, of diabetic people, sadly. With uncontrolled diabetes, you get diabetic retinopathy, you start going blind. They can't feel their toes. So you might have heard that people with uncontrolled diabetes sometimes end up having to have their toes chopped off, uh, amputated limbs and stuff. Because It's literally because they have no sensation of, of touch or pain emanating from their toes because the neurons from the base of the spine right down to the toes are exceedingly long, like amongst the longest in the whole body. So the sugar actually gets in and kills off the myelin. It stops that neuron working. And so they can't tell that their, food, their, their, their toes are jammed into the end of their shoes, cutting off the blood supply, meaning that the toe dies. So if you don't chop the toe off, the gangrene will spread to the whole body. Do you see what I mean? So it's, it's entirely avoidable. Like diabetes, you know, they talk about type three diabetes, you know, which is basically just people who eat sugary stuff from morning, you know, morning till night, like every, every second of the day. Insulin can't con if you're if you're constantly requiring huge floods of insulin to bring your sugar levels down, huge floods of insulin, sugar levels down. Either your pancreas gets tired of producing insulin, can't produce enough, or the cells that respond to that insulin stop responding to it. So, like, you know, bless them. Some people 
they do everything right with their diet and they still get diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is a whole different matter. And, and not everyone who gets type 2 diabetes did it to themselves, but a large proportion did. And, and, and it's not their fault. It's their parents' fault, their grandparents' fault. Bad habits were introduced. Uh, defenses weren't put in place to defend against the influence of the advertising and the, 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 the takeaway food deals that make it more affordable or at least seem to be more affordable to get a happy meal than to go in and buy some fruit and vegetables and whip something up. Uh, you know, like it, it, fruit and veg feels really pricey. It is possible to do, you know, like carrots and cabbage, chop it up, add some yogurt and some lemon juice and you've got coleslaw. You can live off of that stuff. It's a superfood, you know, it's raw. <laughs> um, but you don't have to pay the prices that supermarkets charge you for coleslaw. You can make it yourself, right? Um, it, it doesn't sound delicious. It is. It's. I was saying to my girlfriend, only my fiance, I keep forgetting, only last night, like normally I would go on to a desserty uh, uh, course, but she'd made this stuff and it was so sweet. Like, like the carrot flavor popped out so much against the background flavors. I felt like I was eating cake. And I know that sounds like madness, but you can trick the senses into thinking that foods that you wouldn't normally consider to be sweet and delicious, you, you can use combinations of flavors and spices and whatnot to actually trick your brain into feeling rewarded by something that previously you'd have to scratch with chocolate or cake. Sounds bonkers, but it's true. Speaking of tricking or fooling the senses in a way, and bringing it back for our audience to re remind them of how we've evolved this way for a reason. Like, for example, there was no fridge, so I had to go up and go and go out there and then endorphins would kick in and then I'd get the food and I'd bring it back and the tribe would all go, well, well done, Aiden, and we'd all eat and satiate ourselves. One of the ingenious techniques that our body had created that we forget about is the release of certain chemicals in the stomach to the brain to communicate satiation that that I've had enough to eat here. And the delay in that. And I think again, you know, you mentioned there about knowing, well, if I eat these certain foods, I'll be I'll be fuller, and I won't have to have dessert later on. It's education and, and at the heart of the work you do, and the girl of this show is also to get that education out there. And I know a lot of the people who should be listening to this won't ever hear it because it's not mass media, etc. But we can do our part. We can play our part. I'd love you to share this part about the the way the stomach communicates to the brain. Hey, I'm full here, but there's a delay. Harahachibu. That's what they say in the island of Okinawa. It means eat until you're 80% full. And it's a cultural adaptation to this thing which was a design feature back in the days of our ancestors, when you never knew when you were going to next get your hands on food. Um, it makes sense to have a delay because then you can pack as much food as humanly possible into your gut so that you can pack as much into your blubber as possible so that when inevitably food is, is scarce for a week or two, which happened, which often happened in, in, in prehistoric times, you wouldn't die, right? That, that, that it was a survival thing. And so what that delay is that the, there are various hormones that are secreted by the gut, either the stomach or the small intestine, which travel up to the brain and say, okay, there's plenty of food in here. I'm full. I don't need to eat more. It actually switches off the activity created in the hunger centers of the brain and switches it into, uh, like it's either go find food mode or stop eating mode and, and just rest and digest mode, right? 
And so you'd think that that message, as soon as your stomach's bulging, that message would get straight up to the brain. But actually, it takes about 15 to 20 minutes for the various gears and cogs in the, in, in the thalamus to be switched from continue to eat, continue to eat, continue to eat mode into stop eating mode. So I said it was a design feature back in the days where food was very scarce. It helped us pack away much, many, many more calories than we really needed so that we could save them for a future date in our fatty deposits. But it's a design flaw in this day and age because our environment has changed. We rarely find ourselves in a situation of food scarcity. Sure, it happened a little bit in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic and for many people's life experiences, uh, the supermarkets were empty. It was just a logistical thing. You know, it, it, it was it was about logistics. It wasn't about the availability of food. It was about it was about getting it into the shops in a timely fashion. But generally speaking, and people who live below the breadline, notwithstanding, um, you know, people have food available. So there's food in the fridge. There's food in the shop. There's food in the vending machine. And so we are fighting a different battle these days. The Harahachibu mantra, the eat until you're 80%, it means you shouldn't be aiming to eat until you feel full because if you feel full, then you're overstuffed. You should be eating until the point where you're starting to uh, starting to feel not empty and then stop and wait for 15, 20 minutes because you may well find that you feel full. Now, there's not many people who have that discipline. You either eat slowly, you know, so again, uh, Okinawa is, is an island in the Pacific. It's part of Japan. They eat with chopsticks. That's another solution that helps them to, it takes, it, it, logistically again, it takes longer to eat a bowl of rice and sweet potato and the other things which they regularly eat, a little bit of fish in Okinawa. It takes longer to eat that food, which means it, it gives you longer for those um, hormones produce, produced by the gut and the small intestine and also a little bit of the, 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 the actual fat, fat cells under your, under your skin for those messages to reach the brain because it slows you down. Whereas we have massive plates, massive spoons, <laughs> which, like a salad spoon. Arr, arr, arr. You can get so much. I often think to myself, why do I always eat the whole pizza? Like, like quite, quite often the pizzas you will buy in the supermarket. It, it, the aim is to feed a family. We, you know, that, that pizza, a quarter of the pizza each, let's say, and then have a salad on the side, have some bread on the side, whatever. Um, I eat the whole bloody thing myself. What am I thinking? Even I fall for the, you know, it's it sort of, there are lots and lots of traps set out there to make it seem like overeating is normal. Go to those all, all as, eat as much as you want buffets. It's affordable. You can eat all the world foods in one sitting. And because there's an art, there's a queue of people to go into these places because people love to overeat. Don't get me wrong. Hedonistically, it's it's pleasurable, sure. But what price do you pay? Do you do you feel really sick and you can't sleep? Do you get much? bigger than you were before as a result of eating all that stuff like don't get me wrong once in a while fine i'm talking about habitually eating as much as you want at the buffet is madness it's literally madness if you if you look at the the medium and long-term consequences of that you're quite frankly shortening your life by a significant margin and reducing your quality of life in the meantime and it comes back to as you talk about uh, in the brain our loss aversion we we just do not want to lose things you know so if we're like going to go well i'm pay i paid a tenner for my pizza by golly i'm gonna eat the whole damn thing you know get your money's worth there's again and that's another thing we, we pitching being kind of fiscally responsible against being 
dietarily responsible, you know? Like, no, 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 eat this because it's much more affordable, but it's crap for you. You know, people do struggle, and this is very normal. Humans struggle to hold two conflicting concepts in mind simultaneously. So so, so we, we should accept that and we should slow down and we should think about our choices rather than just sort of mindlessly sleepwalk into whatever the marketing messages are telling us is okay to do. Because quite often it's okay for them to make some shit ton of money. It's not necessarily okay for us, the individual, looking to get more out of ourselves in our daily life. One of the ones I want to talk about was, uh, there's so much I want to talk about, man. It was uh, caffeine, because we mentioned this earlier on. So caffeine is one of these double-edged swords. Uh, it's an adaptogen. I'll let you tell our audience about it, because there's a protocol, and I didn't know about the how clearly you articulated it in the book about the times to eat, drink your coffee, etc. And this was really helpful for me. Good, yeah. So I'm glad to hear that, Aidan. That's, that's great news. And it's so important. It's the most drunk thing in the world. Like 50% of people start the day with a cup of coffee in the whole globe, apparently. I mean, I, I find that mind-boggling, but there you go. Um, so it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, coffee's good for you. People who drink two to five cups of coffee, which, believe it or not, is considered a moderate dose, all the way through middle age, that there's no data on what it does to you earlier on. But if you're drinking, you're drinking that all the way through middle age, then you, on average, and there will obviously be individual differences, get horrible neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and uh, Parkinson's five to ten years later than those who don't drink coffee or don't, you know, don't regularly drink coffee. So, so there's something about coffee which is neuroprotective, and it's probably that it's packed full of antioxidants. Um, and antioxidants help to soak up free radicals, of free radicals being naturally produced um, chemical agents which can smash up your DNA, which can really like they, 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 they're really hungry for an electron and they'll rip it from anywhere around them. As soon as a free radical is formed, it's like gang, just grabs an electron. And that can cause real problems with, 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 with kind of the way the way genes are expressed, for example. And so if the idea is if you've got lots of antioxidants swimming around in your system your bloodstream flooded with caffeine, for example, then the caffeine readily gives up its electron to these free radicals, thereby rendering them not dangerous anymore. So if you're swimming with caffeine, you get rid of the free radicals uh, more quickly. But caffeine sticks around in your system for ages. It's six hours it takes for the concentration of caffeine in your bloodstream to reduce by half, six hours to halve it. So if you've got four cups of coffee in you at midday, which I routinely do, <laughs> then six hours later at 6 p.m., you still have two whole cups of coffee's worth of caffeine in you. And at midnight, a further six hours later, it halves again, goes down to one whole cup of, cup of coffee in your system, equivalent of caffeine, even though you haven't drunk a single drop of caffeine since uh, midday. It's crazy. But like, so I'll typically go to bed at like 11 o'clock. An hour later, there's still a whole cup of caffeine in my system. Um, and, and caffeine is a stimulant. Caffeine kind of works against your best interests in terms of getting to sleep. So, so, so the optimal solution, as far as I can see, is if you want to avail yourself of the neuroprotective benefits of drinking it, but you don't want to ruin your sleep by still having high levels of caffeine knocking around in your system uh, throughout the night, then just absolutely get all your caffeine drinking done before uh, midday. If you really have to, like I struggle a little bit to completely not drink any further caffeine. So um, 
uh, black tea has 50% um, of the amount of caffeine, well, caffeine-related substance uh, as coffee. It has half the dose. But green tea has 15%, 1-5% of the dose of caffeine So, or, or caffeine-related substance. It's, it's very, very similar uh, um, chemical. And so, you, you know, you can switch to black tea, uh, you know, across lunchtime into the early afternoon, switch up. Uh, to be honest, I don't even drink green tea after 4 p.m. Uh, because I, I used to, and then I found even that interfered with my sleep. And one last disclaimer I'm sorry all my answers are so long, but one last disclaimer. Loads of people say there's always one in an audience of 200 professionals. There's always one. It goes, nah, 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 nah. I drink coffee all the way through the day. I always have that. It never stops me getting off sleep. I have a cup of coffee literally just before I, get, I, I go to bed, and I never fail to drop off. And I say to these people, do you stay asleep for a full eight hours? Like, do, do, you, do, you, do you black out and then eight hours later your alarm goes off? No, never. That never, ever, ever happens. They might get off to sleep, but they don't stay asleep. Remember, sleeping is a mission where 90 minutes, uh, sorry, straight down to deep sleep, come up into dream sleep 90 minutes later, down into deep sleep 90 minutes later. You're trying to get through as many of these cycles as possible, whether it's alcohol screwing up the second half, whether it's a caffeine, you know, you get into one and then you, you're awake. You don't necessarily remember that you woke up dozens of times through the night, but you are waking up for short periods of time and, and, and it's disrupting the overall efficiency of your sleep. So please, if you're telling, if you've been telling yourself that you are somehow, you know, genetically different from the rest of humanity and caffeine isn't a stimulant to you and doesn't keep you awake enough, you are lying to yourself. It is definitely interfering with some aspect of your sleep. So just stop doing it. Like just, you know, I don't, I don't mean sound impatient, but at least bring the moment at which you stop drinking coffee forward by an hour each month. You know, you can adjust to these things slowly. You don't have to go from all to nothing, but, but at least be aware of the problem and, 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 and plan to address it at some point in the future. And the things you tell us in the book, I mean, you go deep into this, for example, uh, contraception has an impact on caffeine absorption. Not condoms, but the uh, <laughs> oral contraceptive pill uh, that, let, that, that keeps it in your body for even longer. Yeah. I was wondering why I was, I was drinking my coffee from a certain vessel. <laughs> it's always spilling everywhere. And then uh, and then smoking as well, which was I, I thought you were going to say that a bit. That person in the in the crowd was like, you're on. Do you smoke? Yeah, yeah. So smoking. Um, oh, yeah. So actually, that's a good point. A lot of these people, I don't know for sure, but they look like smokers. <laughs> Nicotine stained yellow fingers receding gums stained teeth all the above no so smoke nicotine so regular smokers um they they it, it speeds up the rate at which um caffeine is metabolized but that's still going to bring it from like six hours down to five hours or four hours so it still means that let's say you've got four cups of coffee in you at 5 p.m and you're metabolizing it that fast you'll still have two cups of coffee uh you know five hours later in you so that's still going to interfere with your sleep and they and they supposedly go so well together the coffee you know it's this habit are are chunked together so oftentimes the smoker has the coffee or the tea with the with the cigarette sure and so you try and quit coffee and then every time you have a cigarette it reminds you of the absence of the other thing every time you have a cigarette it reminds you of the absence of yeah definitely i think a lot a lot of um a lot of drug addictions are one behavior yoked and attached to another and so when you when you do manage to ditch one the other one brings you back to it speaking of which which is lovely little segue man 
unplanned for segue was one of the other bops was get out in nature. And I wanted to chunk a couple of things together. One was the importance of that we mentioned earlier on about how so how we're social animals, it's so important for us, but then nature is so important for us. And apart from things like the sun and the effect of the sun on the skin and vitamin D, etc. But then the other one I thought was really interesting was about uh, um, getting out in getting out of into a different environment. And I loved the, what you t- talked about, get off the beaten path. It's kind of like you talked about the knowledge earlier on, and the taxi drivers, that was really important as well. Yeah, so th- th- this was inspired, like my investigations into how important nature is for human well-being by uh, a study that came out in the journal Nature, or one of the Nature journals, um, a couple of years ago. And it showed that they did an analysis of tens of thousands of people. Uh, and this was actually based in, in the UK. Um, and they asked them, you know, a wide, wide variety of questions. But some of them were, how, how, how happy are you? You know, on a scale of one to ten, uh, like in your, in, your, in your typical week, in your typical year, so on and so forth. And then how much time do you spend outside in nature doing recreational activities? So it's not it's not quite the same if you're working outside because you're not there uh, by your own choice. This is how you spend your free time. And what they found was that people who spend two hours a week, it's not even that much, two hours a week, uh, spe- you know, spending recreational time outside in, in nature. It could be walk through the park, walk along the coast, uh, walk through the forest, somehow communing with Mother Nature, um, or, or even walking down a canal, you know, like it doesn't have to be absolutely beautiful. There just needs to be some, like some grass, some plants, some fields, you know, ideally. Those people who got two hours a week were much happier than those who didn't. Those who got three hours a week were happier than those who got two hours. Those who got four hours happy than those three. Those who got five hours were happier than those who, who got out four, three, two, or whatever hours uh, per week in nature. And then beyond five hours, it didn't seem to make people happier still. So that enabled the authors of this research paper to recommend like a prescription. You sh- we should be aiming to spend five hours of recreational time or more out in nature if we if we want to make ourselves happier, which, again, is really empowering because it's something you, c- you can set your, you know, you can aim for five hours. And if you only man- manage two, you'll be happier than when you never get out into nature. And obviously, some people's proximity to nature is different from the other. But like, I live in the middle of a city, big, stinky London, and, and th- there's always a park relatively nearby. You know, even if you don't live in the wilderness and, you know, we, we've got s- some lovely like recreation ground. I mean, there's the Royal Parks, but I don't live anywhere near them. Um, I walk along the river. Just, you know, I I feel glum. I don't know why. There's nothing particularly on my mind. What can I do? Have a have a glass of water. Go out and seek some nature down a path, ideally, that you don't tread every single day. Like go, go and explore your environment. Hop on a bus, go to the end of the bus line and then go for a walk. Like see what you can find. Get your get your Google Maps out and and see where the green squares and triangles are, and just go and have a look around. Because I've been I've I've only moved to this particular part of London a year ago, and uh, you know my, I've I've explored my range. Started off like within half a mile, and then a mile, and then a mile and a half, two miles, and like now I sort of range four or five miles beyond my front door. And I found them. I'm born and bred Londoner. I had no idea. There's so many awesome little nooks and crannies that you can investigate, and um. Yeah, and, and even if it could even be your back garden, you know, but we often look at our back garden, but we don't necessarily spend time in it. 
We don't necessarily grow plants in it. We don't necessarily, even if we plant plants, bother to water them. But getting out there in it on a regular basis, it makes us happier. Because why? Because pre-humans for hundreds, hundreds of thousands of years, our ancestors were learned literally through survival of the fittest that if you have a natural, if you're naturally drawn towards like ideally an elevated location where you can look across a water source, either a river or a lake or something, and you can see lots of trees and stuff, that's everything a human needs to live. The trees give you food, the water give, quenches your thirst. That's why we pay so much money for a view uh, on holiday, a hotel with a view of the lake or a view of the sea or a view of the forest. You pay much more for that room than you do the one pointing to the wall out back. And there's a reason for it. it, it on an intuitive, on, an, on, a, on a fundamental level, it makes us happy when we can look out across nature because that's where, that's where our opportunities to survive come from came from historically we did a show about a couple of years ago about architecture and innovation aspect of architecture so the environment but one of the things that came out of that was the studies done on hospitals and when people could see the treetops they actually got better quicker it was like incredible yeah appendicitis adjacent rooms that they recovered in one room looked out on a brick wall. The other room looked out. It was a tiny little patch of grass with a couple of trees growing out of it. Um, the specific metrics were uh, they required less painkillers if they had a view of nature, and they were discharged a day or two earlier on average. Same, same surgeon, same hospital, adjacent recovery rooms, and yet there were statistically uh, significant differences in, in, in recovery. Incredible. And I'd love to share, we, we've probably, how, how long more do you have? Do you have 10 minutes? I've got 10. Okay, 10, 10 minutes. Okay, I'll squeeze this in. Two things. One, because we didn't even get through the bops, man. I, you know, what? you know, my notes, I'm, I'm on, I think I'm about a 10th of the way through. <laughs> so uh, anyway, with bop five was exercise, and it, it goes beyond nature. It wasn't about nature. And I'd like to approach exercise. Everybody knows, yeah, yeah, exercise is good for me but from a brain perspective. And the reason I say this is a, a lot of our work, the work we do is knowledge work. Most people work in knowledge work, which is why I'm constantly looking for these hacks personally to try and go, okay, well, if I'm going to be doing it, I want to try and get the best possible outcome from my input. And one of the things I wanted to tie it to was getting out in nature is important. But I want to tee this up the exercise aspect with one of your personal brain hacks with the skipping. Nah, and, skip. and the problem is so this is the problem we all have experienced this is you're sitting there, you have a massive to do list in front of you, you've been there for an hour, you've got through it. Now you start to procrastinate, you start to check emails, everything you shouldn't be doing, you're going on social media, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Jack has a hack for us. Yeah. So uh, I, I discovered this when, when writing, actually, the, the second edition of Sort Your Brain Out. And uh, I was very hyper aware that there's only a certain number of hours of quality work I could do. Like I could force myself to keep working at it. And, <laughs> and if I went beyond like a two-hour session in the morning, a two-hour session in the afternoon, anything I did beyond that, I'd actually make the book worse, not better. And I, it took me a long time to realize this. And so... Um, and so I, I learned to sort of break my work up a lot more so that so that, that, that those four hours could be spread uh, across. Uh, I, I just wanted to optimize the how quickly I could get those four good hours of work done rather than having to constantly take a really big break between them. 
And so uh, a one minute skip is just enough to flood your body with adrenaline, right? So if, if you skip, you, you, you jump up and down, jump up and down, jump up and down. Your brain doesn't really know why you're jumping up and down. It just knows that suddenly it needs to get your heart pumping in order to provide enough oxygen uh, to, to power your muscles, to enable you to keep jumping at a very accelerated rate. So it's fast enough to cause the release of endorphins. And now, sorry, not endorphins. To, to release endorphins, you need to do actually, surprisingly, a really intense, almost an hour long, uh, quite intensive run to get the endorse, endorphin high that they call the runner's high. So to feel like high as a kite, like you're on drugs, you need to do about 45 minutes to an hour of really intensive running, like a long distance runner. But it just takes a minute of skipping to release en uh, endocannabinoids. So endocannabinoids are the naturally produced uh, cannabinoids that our body, you know, we, we have receptors that respond to cannabis, like smoked hash or, or, or marijuana or whatever, because only because these substances are produced naturally in much smaller levels in our brain in order to help us uh, feel better, feel, feel more relaxed, and also to numb pain, but a little bit. Like it's, it's, a, it's a much, much gentler version of the, the high and the pain relief that you'd get from endorphins, which, which are basically a powerful form of opiate. Um, it's a different, completely different neurotransmitter system. So, so, so a one minute skip, it's not enough to break a sweat. So, that you, you know, you're dripping with sweat and you need to go off and have a shower, but it is enough to, to get your ventilation rate going breathe in lots of oxygen, breathe away lots of waste carbon dioxide. It's enough to get your adrenaline going, which sharpens you up. It's enough to get the endocannabinoids coming out so that you, you get some relief. You feel, you feel a little bit happier in yourself. And then you can get back down to work and crack on with it. Now, you're going to look odd doing this in the office, but everyone's remote working, so no one's going to know. No, the other bit is I, I really wanted to get into this as well because I thought you were alluding to this bit. So that bit I mentioned in edition one, the new bit in edition two was this amazing research that came out about myokines, right? So myokines are substances which are generated in muscles. If you pump and pump and pump a muscle, it doesn't matter what the muscle is, could, could even be this, I wouldn't recommend it. But like when you're running, you know, your thigh muscles are the biggest muscle in your body. And so if you're running or jogging or even walking, when, you're, when your body is doing exercise, it essentially sends a message to the brain via this substance called myokines that's released into the bloodstream from the muscles saying, I am moving around. Therefore, I'm probably going to lots of different environments where I might encounter interesting things. And therefore, I need to, I'll need to remember the experiences I have in these various places I go to. And so perhaps because of that, when these myokines travel up to the brain, they cause an increase in the release of another uh, compound called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And then that brain-derived neurotrophic factor goes into the hippocampus, which is the brain area that is involved in creating and retrieving memories. It's also involved in knowing where you are in space, like so helping you to navigate around places. And it's also involved in helping you imagine future scenarios. So it's very important for imagination. And once this brain-derived neurotrophic factor that was caused by the myokin, myokines that came out of your muscles, only when those muscles are being pumped and not when those muscles aren't being used much, that brain-derived neurotrophic factor causes the hippocampal neurons to multiply 
you get an increase in the birth of new hippocampal neurons. And the hippocampus is only one of two places where your brain can create brand new neurons. And the older neurons that were already in the hippocampus get re-energized. So specifically, you get more um, mitochondria. And mitochondria are the tiny organelles that you might remember from biology lessons. Inside every cell, you have a mitochondria, which is responsible for using oxygen to release a greater amount of energy from glucose. So it, it, it's the difference between aerobic and anaerobic respiration. Um, it's the mitochondria that enable you to release all of this extra, extra energy when oxygen is available. And you get the birth of many more mitochondria in each cell in the hippocampus, meaning it reinvigorates and it rejuvenates the existing uh, cells in your memory banks and those which help you create and, uh, and retrieve memories, but also know where those memories were created in space. And, and, and that, that's one final thing. If this is the end, I must mention this before we, before we finish, because there's a reason that our memories come to us when we're in specific locations like there's no you can't bring to mind all the memories you've ever had accumulated in your entire life to date at the same time it makes sense for your brain to bring to mind the memories that are related to the environment you're in so th there's a few studies that have shown that when you tr when you create memories in a certain place uh, when you then subsequently revisit that place you're much better at recalling that information so, so the reason this is important is because our, our certain set piece behaviors pop up in different places. And quite often businesses will say, right, let's go and do a brainstorming session. And they'll go to exactly the same very official looking boardroom where people get disciplinaries, you know, like, like your memories of, of getting a bit of a dodgy report in that physical space will completely get in the way of open-minded, th creative thinking and imaginative you know, innovation. And, and, and yet people don't realize this. This is why an off-site meeting is so good for kind of getting teams to work better because those memories that come to mind when you walk through the door of your office or whatever, um, there's lots of things, good things and bad things happen in the office. Whereas when you go to a completely new place, you've got a nice blank slate. You don't have previous memories of those places to intrude. You can literally... A fresh environment will encourage fresh thinking. And so we can carve out specific locations in, in our day-to-day -day life, like go to a certain cafe when you want to do creative thinking and always sit in the same corner in the same chair. And then just by virtue of getting up and going to that cafe where you always do your, your innovative thinking, if that's all you've ever done there, it puts your mind, it brings the memories of those kind of experiences to mind and it puts you in the mindset that lends itself to good thinking. So, so, so this yoking of this, this memories are attached to the locations to which they are most relevant. And, and, and you, can, you can use that knowledge to sort of organize your working and, and professional life, <clears throat> not least in a remote working world where you blur the work life and home life have a completely separate room in which you do your work. And when you leave that room, you're no longer working. You can be in family mode or home mode or relax mode. But a lot of people don't have that possibility. They maybe have their office set up for, for the hours of the day in their kitchen. So if that's the case, at minimum, bother to clear everything away. Pack away all of your laptops and any work-related accoutrement. If you have to have your leisure time in the same space that you do your work, like let's say, you're in a house share and you've only got one room. 
You have to pack away all the stuff and it might take 10 minutes. Invest that 10 minutes in getting rid of all of the evidence that this was a place where I had stressful days work done. And then in the morning, go through that five, 10 minutes of setting up. I know it's laborious, but you can change the appearance of the same actual environment so that it's in work mode and it's in home mode. And I, I lived in a, in a studio flat for five years and I used to shuffle the furniture around like crazy for the different, otherwise I'd have gone mad because I've worked, I've worked for myself for 12 years and it, I literally would have lost my mind. It's so useful for remote workers to actually know that they need to do that if they want to uh, limit the amount of stress they function. I'm sorry, it's half past. We've got no time to talk about stress. I'm joking. I'm joking. We can do what you want. <laughs> Man, that was so awesome. I, I was one of my prim self-priming uh, exercises is, as our audience knows, they're sick of hearing me, me here and send this. I, I pick a pin. Uh, a pin that I wear each week so that was my pin yeah it was a brain that was my one today but I but it's so bloody warm I, I haven't been wearing my jacket lately so I have it in my hand here but I still go through the process because it's it's part of the ritual of priming myself yeah, talis talismanic like yeah grab, uh objects on people's desks in their yeah. office like yeah. uh it's important it is yeah. important you can you can embody it with memories um belief is the most important thing. If you believe that something's going to help you focus your mind, it doesn't matter whether it has some mystical power to do so. If you believe that it has the power to get you in business mode, it will. We had the great Bruce Lipton on the show before. The biology of belief was it was magnificent epigenetics. Bruce Lipton, eh? Oh, you love him, man. He's it's great. It's the biology of belief is the name of the book. Um. Man, there was so much more in there. I, I, you know, and just for our audience, get a copy of Sort Your Brain Out. There's so much in there. There's so much on decision making. There's uh, so many experiments that Jack ran himself throughout the different programs he ran over the year about priming, for example, the wine experiments in there. I'm just thinking off the top of my head, uh, the stress, the impact of stress on your body, how it's a good thing. It's not necessarily always a bad, gets us out of bed, gets small doses it's just the prolonged stress oh there's so much in there and you know if if you're a parent as well or a teacher understanding this and the impact on the children passing on good knowledge on to the next generation is so so important as well and it's done in such a, a accessible way which is a difficult thing to do as well so congrats to you and adrian for for doing such a good job of that thank you Aiden. Jack, for people who want to engage you for those keynotes that you do, for the corporate education that you do, or are interested in the VR work that you mentioned earlier on, where can they find you? Well, a number of places. So uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I, I'm, I'm Richard Jack Lewis on LinkedIn. It's a bit confusing, but Jack is a nickname uh, that was given to me by the BBC. It causes much confusion, but I might as well put it out there now. Uh, so I can be found on LinkedIn, um, drjack.co.uk. Uh, and also I've got a new website, uh, brainmanvr.co.uk. Um, there are uh, many different ways of getting hold. If you just type Dr. Jack Lewis in uh, Google, you'll find umpteen different references. And there's always a way to find me. But uh, I love my favorite thing out of all the things I do is giving keynote talks at conferences. I love being able to see the whites of people's eyes. I love the fact that I'll give a talk for an hour and quite honestly, quite regularly, I'll then answer individual questions for a further hour thereafter. And I make myself available for that because I love it. Like people don't often get face to face with a neuroscientist who speaks in plain English. And I, I, I actually love 
that bit so much because they get their chance to ask the question, they finally get the answer, and I feel like I'm I'm doing what I was put on this earth to do, you know, absorb brain information and pass it on in plain English. Beautiful, man. What a what a great what a great time I, I've had. I've learned so much and I learned so much from reading the book and I'm very grateful. Don't forget for our audience, sign up to the innovation show.io newsletter. You'll be in the, the hat to win a copy of this book. And if you don't buy a copy, leave an Amazon review as well. Also really helps the author, really helps yeah, build, boost that damn algorithm that we live by today. Jack, absolute pleasure. Author of Sort Your Brain Out, Dr. Jack Lewis. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Nice one, man. That was great, mate. I really enjoy Honestly, I've done loads of these and it, it, this has been the best. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. I learned so much from the book. It really consolidated a lot of the things we've talked about on other episodes recently on the Brains, Beliefs and Biases series here on The Innovation Show. As always, we have been enabled to do much, much more content, as you know, by our sponsor, Zai boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and transfer funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. I look forward to seeing you very soon.